You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. In my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench. Women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. Welcome back to season three of United States of Women. Woo-hoo. Try to. <laughs> Try to. <laughs> Since I can't record things. <laughs> this is Elizabeth, and I'm joined by the lovely Jessica. Hello. And this is your history podcast from mm-hmm. the Geek Elite Media Network discussing those lesser known famous women of the United States. So yeah. Those women that have had an impact, but... Never got their dues. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. <laughs> There's there are so many, so many of them. So actually, in fact, for uh, this season, we mm-hmm. are in the third state to join the union, New Jersey. Jersey. My mom's from there. Yay. And in the New Jersey archive of historical women, they had a mm-hmm. hundred names for me to choose Ooh. from, and those are just the ones that they have actually recognized. <laughs> Which is insane. Um, While New Jersey has a ton of historical and important women, we're going to focus on the less, the lesser known ones um, Mm -hmm. or the semi lesser known ones, because at least today's episode is about somebody who every probably probably knows but doesn't know. Yeah, if that makes sense. Like one of those Snapple trivia things where exactly. you like read it once and then you forget about it. Yes, <laughs> that's it. So today, Jessica, we're going to talk about the founder of the American Red Cross. Okay. All right. So humanitarian. There you go. You know, nonprofit helps people with emergency disaster relief. Also helps people learn how to do CPR and first aid. Yep. I've actually done their CPR <laughs> class too. That's the same. Uh, pretty, I'm pretty sure like everybody who had to babysit or be a lifeguard as a teenager yep. had to go through the Red Cross's first aid training. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like. Um, but so Jessica, what... What do you kind of, do you know any of the history of the American Red Cross? Um, I know it's been around for quite a bit. Um, I don't really know its origins too well, but I assume, I don't know, probably some great humanitarian thing and people were like, we should probably do something about this and help these people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you are not, you are not far off. Okay. Okay. You are, you are right on point Mm -hmm. um, because the American Red Cross is a part of the International Red Cross, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Okay. Which came about. Because of the Geneva Convention. Well, that makes sense. Okay. You have the Franco-Prussian War. It's a disaster. Lots of death. It's awful. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everybody sits down and goes, okay, we need to write some, like, actual rules to how you fight war. Like, there's got to be some some ground rules. So they come together. We kind of already had rules, but then I guess when weapons change and technologies change, and which it seems weird to think the 1800s weapons had changed, but like, but they changed. They they changed pretty quickly. You were no longer stabby stabbing people. You were shooting shooting people. Yeah. (laughs) So 
the Geneva Convention gets held, and in February of 1863, five members come together and decide that, you know, we need to actually care for the soldiers that are dying on the battlefield. Oh, you need to care? So they're not just pawns? (laughs) They aren't just pawns. We can't just, like, leave them for dead or be like... Tap, tap, go home and deal with whatever. Like, ah, the Valkyries will get them. Nobody even believes that anymore. We took it over with Christianity. Oh, right. <laughs> so they get together and they decide, all right, we need to create something that's not military, that is just care. And so the the leader of it, not the protagonist of our story today, but the leader that's Henry Duant. Hmm. who initially wants to do, like, we'll just do a single big organization that's going to take care of all soldiers in all wars, no matter what side they're on, no matter, and that kind of... That, that sounds like a nightmare, actually, like, to plan and organize and maintain. So that kind of got tweaked and adjusted, and they're like, okay, okay, we'll have, like, an international overarching loose conglomerate Mm -hmm. and then everybody will have their own sub chapters which will have sub chapters which will have sub chapters so on and so forth all right that makes sense so that's kind of where the international red cross gets its start from there the our protagonist the lovely clara barton and i haven't come up with a title for her yet so we'll have to think on that um for this episode but clara barton begins the founding of the american red cross so she Mm -hmm. was she was there she was present she was hearing all of this stuff and she jumped on it Mm -hmm. so in 18 in on may 21st 1881 barton founds what would become the american red cross okay okay it wouldn't get its charter until nineteen until May of nineteen hundred, hmm. which would be renewed in nineteen oh five, and has been renewed since. Its most recent charter was adopted in May two thousand seven by Congress. So they are a quasi governmental entity. So they they don't operate within the government, but they operate with the government's backing and permissions. Okay, so like. So they work alongside the military sometimes, too, whereas, like, their tent is protected by the military campgrounds kind of thing, but they're yes. not actually part of the military would be one of yeah. my examples for that. that. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's that's pretty much it. It's like the U.S. government goes, okay, here's some money. <laughs> Go fundraise some more money and do your thing and we'll help. We'll help, like, protect you and we'll then also, protect, like, get yeah. people there and, and stuff exactly. if, if you're going into, like, <laughs> battlefields. Exactly. So, initially, the Red Cross focused almost entirely on on-battlefield soldier care in the immediate vicinity of the battle. Mm-hmm. And that starts to shift during World War One. Because during World War One, we start to see, you know, as the first quote unquote global war, mm-hmm. you start to see civilian populations directly impacted by the fighting that's occurring because the battlefronts are now 
on 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 the home front on the home front yeah so with that the red cross begins to do first aid water safety public health nursing programs they start to kind of branch out mm-hmm. in the midst of that and they really grow in prominence during that time so prior to world war 1 or at the start of world war 1 in 1914 mm-hmm. there were only 107 chapters of the american red cross uh-huh by the end, four years later, I mean, that's all we're talking about is four years, they had 3,864 well, chapters. That's, that's a boom. Yeah, yeah. Like a ridiculous boom. Um, and their membership had grown from 17,000 members to 20 million adult and 11 million junior Red Cross members. Oh, cute. Right? Yeah. <laughs> all I can think of is candy stripers in hospitals. I know. It's very, it's got to be very similar. Um, the public contributed $400 million in funds and materials mm-hmm. to support the um, Red Cross, including for projects both for American soldiers and for allied forces and civilian refugees. Wow. During that time. Yeah. Mm. So the Red Cross then also staffed hospitals and ambulance companies, and they ended up recruiting 20,000 registered nurses to serve in the military. Hmm. Basically, the minute World War I is done, they then switch to the Spanish flu and combating that. So pandemic help, which is what they're currently doing with COVID-19. Yeah, which is currently, yeah. So, yep. you know, not much has changed in 100 mm-hmm. years. It's fine. <laughs> but, uh, so, with the outbreak of the global pandemic... With the global war, the American Red Cross decides to come home and really kind of grow on the home front. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start to see them care for veterans long term before the really the establishment of the VA and the uh-huh. VA hospitals. And you see them care for internal communities. This is when they start doing other disaster relief aid and those mm-hmm. kinds of things that typically they hadn't been before. Mm. Um. Then during the Second World War, the American Red Cross provided extensive services to allies, civilians, service members, veterans. You see them do a lot of the care, both in terms of providing needed medical care and Mm -hmm. water and safety, but also some of those other things to just care for the whole human. Yeah, I know they do like after big shootings and stuff that happens in america they do blood drives and run those for that for the people in the hospital and also um when the covid pandemic hit um and the daycare i work at was kind of sort of like kind of closed but not quite closed we only had like a few kids because we have to take care of essential children um and they had a training on how to deal with like covid as somebody who's working through it and like, and how to notice signs of like trauma in people when it comes to the pandemic. So, you know, they, they do a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, actually the first, speaking of those blood drive programs, mm-hmm. the first civilian blood drive programs, cause they were doing some soldier to soldier, but the first civilian blood drive programs mm-hmm. occurred just after world war two mm-hmm. and the Red Cross now supplies 40% of the blood and blood products for the U.S. Wow. Yeah. 
So they are definitely all in on that. Um, they work very closely with FEMA and with other disaster relief organizations as well. Just kind of wherever they're needed, it's where they go. Hmm. But so that's a, a brief history on the American Red Cross. Mm-hmm. There's a huge amount of information packed very tightly. Um, the American Red Cross's website has a, and where I pulled most of my information from, a full history PDF. It's only about five pages, but it's a really interesting mm-hmm. read. Um, and they have a ton of sources they cite to um, in regards to that. And the same goes for the International Red Cross as well. But I want to get to mm. the lovely Clara Barton because... Hmm. She is one of those people who never intended to, like, be something. Uh-huh. It just kind of, she just kept doing what needed to be done when it needed to be done. Yes. I can and understand then all of a sudden, this person. <laughs> she looked up and was like, oh. Oh, okay. I guess now I'm in charge of things. <laughs> I guess I'm now running the American Red Cross. That I, I could honestly, I feel like I relate to her because that kind of happened to me in college when it came to my psychology club where yeah. my professor who led <laughs> it was basically like, well, I mean, you're already doing this stuff and you're actually coming to all the meetings. So you might as well be president next year. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Come okay. <again>? Yeah. <laughs> so the lovely Clara Barton was born on December 25th. 1821. She was the first girl and the fourth child. She had three older brothers. Okay. And she was born in North Oxford, Massachusetts. Um, Her father, Captain Stephen Barton, was a member of the local militia and what's called a selectman. So a local politician. Okay, cool. Right? (laughs) Um, So... She credited him with inspiring her patriotism and broad humanitarian interest. Hmm. Just as a as a general concept. But Clara's first patient in life mm-hmm. was her older brother, Stephen, who came down... He fell from the roof of a barn and... As received, boys do. As boys do. <laughs> and received a serious head injury. Oh. She then... And she was only 10 at the time. She then spent the next year nursing her brother back to health, even after doctors had given up on him months in. Nobody thought he was going to regain full abilities, and he ended up making a full recovery. She learned how to administer the medication that was prescribed. She'd learned to apply leeches to his body, which was a typical the thing at the, at the time. time. Yeah, yeah, not recommended nowadays. Not recommended nowadays, <laughs> but she learned how to properly do that and remove them and all of those things at the age of 10. You got to tickle them under the belly. Not just kidding. I have no idea. <laughs> salt, Jessica. Oh, right. Salt. <laughs> salt. No, tickle. <laughs> Maybe it feels like tickling. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know where you're getting tickling, but I'll we'll go salt? with it. Sure, you have to tickle the leeches with salt. Oh no! You made it sound like it was complicated. And like, it's just just put salt on it. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, so one of the things that we know about Clara is she was amazingly shy, very timid, a bit, a, definitely an introvert. Mm. And her parents, after she nursed her brother back to health, were concerned about her remaining so shy and so timid. And 
So being the good parents that they are, they are going to correct this. Oh, dear. This personality flaw. Mm hmm. And they sent her to boarding school. No, that's like, that's not good. Well, they, they figured, you know, if she's going to be on her own, she'll, she'll have to figure it out. She'll have to, she'll have to make friends because she can't just hang no, out no, with no, the family. No, 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 She's just going to hovel in the hold on her bedroom and just read books all day and try not to have panic attacks. Like, that's going to be what it is. Well, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Um, so she only lasted a few months at the boarding school. Because she became so much more timid mm-hmm. and so depressed that she stopped eating. So oh. she had to come home to nurse herself back to hell. Oh, good gosh. Yeah. So when she arrived home, though, uh, the family got word that one of her dad's cousins had died and had left a widow and several children and this farm down in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So Clara's dad picked up the whole family and moved them to New Jersey to be on this farm. <laughs> so they there she met, you know, more of her male cousins. Mm-hmm. She spent a lot of time. She enjoyed hanging out with them. She'd go horseback riding, Ooh. playing in the river. So she's a tomboy. She's very much a tomboy. Mm-hmm. So of course her mother then becomes concerned that not only she's still timid and shy, but she's also too masculine. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing she's reaching those teenager years in which you're going to have to, unfortunately, for the time, think of, like, how am I going to marry my daughter off? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I can't marry her to one of her cousins. So I know. Like, <laughs> gotta come up with something else. Um, so her mom, in a much gentler approach than they approached the initial shyness so they learned their original (laughs) lesson to not just slam somebody into everything they hate yeah um brought one of clara's female cousins who was a couple years older into the house Mm -hmm. and she taught her you know ladylike manners and how to operate and basically look here's how you're gonna have to function in society Mm -hmm. yes it sucks Mm -hmm. we're just gonna have to get through it i know Here's your checklist. Yep. <laughs> um, so at that point, she finished her schooling at at the base level, and her family decides, you know, she still is too shy. We need to get her something that kind of gets her out. Of, there's got to be some way to to get her into society. Mm-hmm. So this time around, they encourage her tell her to go get her teaching certification so she gets her teaching certification at 17 in 1839 Mm -hmm. and the good news is is she was very interested in being a teacher she had been persuaded but she enjoyed she ended up liking she ended up really enjoying it that's good um she ended up so in 1838, she officially became, or in, sorry, in 1839, she became a teacher, mm-hmm. and she served for 12 years in schools in Canada and in West Georgia. Hmm. So she then ended up coming home after her mother's death in 1851, hmm. and she was teaching in Highstown. She went back to school in New York um, where Mm. she developed many friends 
and broadened her point of view on issues. Hmm. They recognized her ability, and she ended up finding actual romance with the principal of the Institute. Ooh. Right? <laughs> um, while teaching in Highstown, she discovered that a neighboring town called Bordertown had no schools whatsoever. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's... It was, there, was, there was no school. No public school. So... She was tasked with uh, opening the first public school in Bordertown, and it was the first ever completely free school in New Jersey. Wow. That's nice. Yeah. She was so successful that after a year, she had to hire an additional teacher Mm -hmm. to help teach over 600 students. Ooh, wow. Um, Wait, just two teachers? Just two teachers, 600 (laughs) students. Yep, there you go. Um, both of the women were making $250 a year, which was outstanding at the time, particularly as Mm -hmm. single females. Mm -hmm. Um, and their success caused the town to raise nearly $4,000 to construct an entire new school building. I should make a movie out of that aspect of her life. (laughs) Right. Unfortunately, it was really short-lived because upon completion of the project and the establishment of the whole school, she got replaced as principal by by a man um, because the school board determined that a woman was unfit to run such a large operation. I mean, can we... run everything in your lives like so she was demoted to female assistant of the principal (laughs) right um and it was such a harsh environment that she ended up having a nurse nervous breakdown and quit yeah Mm. so in 1855 she picked up and moved to Washington, D.C., where she began to work as a clerk for the U.S. Patent Office. This was the She was the first woman to have received a substantial clerkship in the federal government Ooh, at cool. the time. And she was thoroughly harassed for it by all the other male well, clerks I in mean. the office. Yeah. Eventually, tides turning because of her political stances on things. Mm-hmm. She was reduced to a copyist and event in 1856. And eventually she was fired because of her quote unquote black Republicanism. So she was an abolitionist and Mm. while not a term coined at the time, a suffragette Mm -hmm. and all of those things. So she eventually got fired. Um, After the election of Abraham Lincoln, She returned to the patent office in 1861, now as a copyist, hoping that she could eventually climb the ladder with climb the ladder a Republican president. So her views aren't as yep, and hopefully make way for more women to serve in government Mm -hmm. in the future was kind of her thought. Mm -hmm. Um, That all changed in April of 1861. So, on April 19th, 1861, the Baltimore riot resulted in the first bloodshed of the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. So, Baltimore, Maryland, 
not far from D.C. Mm-mm. at all. The victims from the Massachusetts regiment, again, where she had originally grown up, so this is you know her home state, mm-hmm. um, and where she had taught for a good chunk of time, were transported to the Massachusetts regiment, was transported to Washington, D.C., and Barton, just wanting to do something, anything, arrived at the train station to provide nursing aid. So she ended up nursing 40 men that day. Wow. And she provided um, additional care in her home mm-hmm. as as people were being transported. She discovered that she recognized several of the boys, or the men, mm-hmm. as people she'd either grown up with or students she had taught. Oh. Yeah. Um, she, along with several other women, provided... Clothing, food, supplies for the sick, wounded soldiers. She, at that point, learned how to do, store and distribute medical supplies. She became the warehouse. Hmm. So, she credited, the, at the end of her life, she credited that day to being where things shifted. Okay. And she decided that it was her duty to provide care for Union soldiers. Initially, Barton decided she'd use her own living quarters as a storeroom and distributed supplies, medical supplies and mm-hmm. food and clothing to Union soldiers that she'd collect with a few friends. Despite the fact that the War Department and the uh, General field surgeons did not want any assistance from her. <laughs> yeah, that's, of course. That's so surprising. Yeah. Um, eventually, in eighteen, in August of eighteen sixty-two, she. I guess the term would be annoyed the quartermaster so much that she finally got permission to have what she called ladies' aid societies uh-huh. on the front lines. <laughs> I feel like I just, I'm going to be there anyway. <laughs> just, just deal with it. Either you can give me permission or you can deal with trying to hunt me down. Yeah. <laughs> Your choice. Either way, it's going to happen. Um, she eventually gained support from other po- other people who believed in her cause, including Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts. Okay. So from her initial home state. After... The first battle of Bull Run, she placed an ad in a Massachusetts newspaper for supplies, and she ended up receiving so many supplies that she had to rent an entire extra storehouse. That's good. Right. So she was present at battles including Cedar Mountain, the second Bull Run, Antietam, Fredericksburg. She She ended up helping both Union and Confederate soldiers. She... Ended up having to use unconventional supplies in her aid. Uh, for instance, the Battle of Antietam, she ended up having to use corn husks, corn husks yeah. instead of bandages because she ran out of supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1863, she ended up in a romantic relationship with Colonel John J. Ewell. Mm-hmm. But in 1864, she was appointed by Union General Benjamin Butler as the lady in charge. Ah. <laughs> Of hospitals in at the front of the army of of the James, so of the Union Army. Mm-hmm. Among her more harrowing experiences, um, 
at one point while she was attending tending to a wounded soldier, a bullet pierced through her the sleeve of her blouse, missing her and into the soldier she was tending to. <laughs> At least know. according to the stories. The curse that had to come out from her. <laughs> like, I was, I was, just, can you not? I'm nursing here. I'm in the midst of stuff, so could you stop? Just stop. Um... So she continued to serve hospitals on the field mm-hmm. and in in the rear throughout the Civil War, organizing supplies, organizing other nurses, mm-hmm. just generally managing the world, <laughs> as one does. So she basically is the Red Cross, but not part of the Red Cross. Well, the Red Cross doesn't exist at this point. Oh, it doesn't exist? Oh, okay. Yeah. She then gets, we get to the end of the Civil War. So this is where I talk about, like, she just decides to do all the jobs. <laughs> okay. She just, so we get to the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. She's now been fighting. You know, she's been tending as a nurse to mm-hmm. soldiers for the last four years, mm-hmm. five years. She gets to the end. She gets back to D.C. Well, now what? <laughs> and she hears from friends that there were th- thousands of letters to the war department that were just going unanswered because the war department didn't know which gravesite these soldiers were buried at. So they couldn't tell anybody. So they were just labeled as missing. And so they just didn't respond to the family's requests and letters about what happened. Oh gosh. So she contacted Lincoln and she was granted permission um, after meeting with him to begin the program called the Search for Missing Men. Um, So she ran the Office of Missing Soldiers uh, for the next several years. Wow. And she and her assistants wrote 41,855 replies to inquiries and helped locate more than 22,000 missing men. Wow. For these families, yeah. They didn't have the internet. Right? Or no. GPS. <laughs> um, and then she ended up spending a lot of time finding, identifying, and properly burying 13,000 individuals who died at the in the Ander- Andersonville Prison Camp, a Confederate prisoner of war camp in Georgia. She continued this over the next four years, burying 20,000 more Union soldiers and marking their graves. Want to know how much Congress appropriated for this whole project that she did? Five (laughs) dollars. A little bit more. Fifteen grand. Okay. So they gave her some resources. But literally, the amount of work she's doing. (laughs) And that's to run her her entire office. Wow. So upon completion of this project, she had gained so much recognition, so much support, that she ended up delivering speeches around the country mm-hmm. for the next three years. Um, and during this time, she met Susan B. Anthony and Ooh. Frederick Douglass. Ooh. She became an activist for the civil rights movement and for the suffrage movement. She just kind of was doing all the things. <laughs> Eventually, it took such a toll that her doctors told her, go need, on vacation. You need to calm down. You just need to, you just need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so she went on a prescribed European holiday. <laughs> in um, 1869 
which landed her in Geneva, Switzerland. Ooh. <laughs> um, where she was introduced to the Red Cross and Dr. Appia. I feel like she was like, wait, I'm already doing this. <laughs> Basically. So he invited her to become to rep become the representative for the American branch of the Red Cross. He's like, you. you know, I already like doing you. it. Just do it. <laughs> okay. Can you, can you just do this? Um, and he agreed to help her find um, financial benefactors and those kinds of things. So at this point, Barton becomes president of the American Branch Society, which held its first official meeting in her apartment in Washington, D.C. on May 21st, 1881. Woohoo! <laughs> um, the first local society was founded in Danesville, New York, on August 22nd, 1881, hmm. um, where she maintained a country home. So she basically was like, okay, I found the whole thing in my home home mm-hmm. and then in my vacation home i'm gonna make them do one too <laughs> uh she would then spend the next 24 years running the american red cross before finally retiring mm-hmm. in her final years she lived in glen echo maryland uh, where she served as basically a past president to the American Red Cross. So she still did all the speeches. She did a lot of the fundraising. So even after she retired, <laughs> so she, she still worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, she eventually published her autobiography in 1907 mm-hmm. titled the story of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And on April 12th, 1912, she died in her home at the age of 90. Wow. Her death was caused by pneumonia. <laughs> so, that is the story of Clara Barton and the founding of the American Red Cross. Woo. There was so much there. <laughs> um, so citations for this uh, include the American Red Cross, the uh, National Women's History Museum mm-hmm. article on Clara Barton, obviously the Wikipedia page, um, excerpts from her biography, I was able to pull offline because in doing this podcast, if I bought all the auto, if I bought all the biographies and treaties, yeah, I'd be broke. Yeah. Um, and then the article about, uh, entitled Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross by Cole Summers in the truth about nursing, hmm. uh, journal. That's Clara Barton. Woohoo. The woman who was too shy to attend boarding school founding the American Red Cross. It really honestly makes sense. I get it. I've got it. I don't know how I got here with how shy I was in high school. So I think it was just a matter of finding the right people and motivations. Yes. It didn't feel Mm -hmm. quite as tedious. But that's Clara. Jessica, if mm-hmm. people want to talk to you about the wonderful world of Red Cross CPR and first aid, where can yes. they find you? Go ahead and tweet me as at JM Bailey writes. And you can find me with the rest of Geek Elite Media at Geek Elite Media and our Facebook page forward slash Geek Elite Media. Archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts can be found on our newly renovated website, geekleetmedia.com. So come check us out. 
Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcatcher you use so we can spread the word about our podcast network and all of these wonderful women. But until next time, this is the United States of Women saying always remember to geek out. This concludes our broadcast. Peace.